Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, June 19th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and on Twitter at inquiringshow and on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This week's episode is sponsored by Harry's.com. Harry's is less than two years old and is already disrupting the shaving industry, offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. And Harry's will give first-time customers $5 off if you go to harrys.com and use coupon code inquiringminds. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, coupon code inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by SmartThings. You have a smartphone. What about a smart home? SmartThings has created a super easy way to control, automate, and secure every aspect of your home, and you don't have to be a tech genius to install it and use it. Lights, locks, thermostats, security with SmartThings, it's all connected through a single app on your phone. To get 10% off your choice of either their home security, energy saver, or water detection kits, go to smartthings.com minds. Once again, that's smartthings.com minds. If you're a loyal listener to our show, you'll know that June is our month for exploring emerging technology. This is our third episode in the series, and this week I really wanted to talk about how tech is changing our behavior, and specifically how much data we can now collect about ourselves just by wearing a simple device on our wrist or downloading a bunch of apps on our phones. These days, it seems like you can find an app that measures pretty much anything, including what your friends are doing, or as some websites put it, you can spy on your spouse. Don't do that. That's not ethical. In any case, we seem to be giddily accepting these devices and apps and treating them like toys, but they also have far-reaching implications when it comes to issues like privacy and how we interact with our environment and with each other. So to get a better understanding of what is the current state-of-the-art of wearable technology and where we can expect it to go in the future, I spoke with Rachel Kalmar. She's a neuroscientist by training, and she left the lab to work in the startup world. For the past two years, she has worn dozens of different wearable devices every day, continuously tracking her own data and analyzing that information so that she can understand not only how the devices work, a little bit about herself, but also how the whole wearable technology is emerging. I hope she says they work because I've been using them for a long time and I can't tell if they're working for me. Really? So what what wearables do you use? I mostly use a watch, but I've also been using my phone to track my sleep to improve my sleep hygiene and behavior. Huh. Uh, but I'm not really like consistent with it. It's like me and exercise. And does it does it did you feel like it actually has made your sleep quality better? No, it hasn't yet. But I think that's because of how I've approached it not so much of the data that it's garnering. I also wonder if the data it's garnering is good, you know, lack of a better term. Uh, but I'm sure these are things that we're going to talk about. Yep, that's all stuff that we covered in the interview. And um, I really am a newbie to the wearable world. I really didn't don't use any of the apps on my phone that um, are are sort of tracking in that way. But I did just get a new Apple Watch. So I'm, I'm sort of experiencing that firsthand now. So that'll be our interview for today. But first, Kishore, what's in the news this week? So one drop of blood from you and we can tell every virus you've ever encountered what? with an asterisk. Yeah, with an asterisk. So 
when viruses infect you, they leave antibodies behind. And a new... <laughs> antibodies or antibodies? Well, I'm enunciating <laughs> anti... Antibodies sounds so much more sinister. Yeah, that would, in this context, maybe. So the, uh, the researchers that recently developed a test that can be done as little as $25 to measure all the antibodies left behind by viruses that have infected you. The big asterisk is they can only do that for the viruses that we know about, which is only a small percentage of the total viruses out there. But what's exciting about this is they did a study with about 560 or so people from the US, Africa, and Europe and compared their viral load. And the most interesting finding is that uh, we as humans have a really consistent response to viruses and the viruses that are largely affecting us are the same regardless of where we live. So like cold and flu are, are showing up everywhere. That's great from a commonality perspective because now you can think about vaccinations as being universal. What's a little bit different is uh, here in the United States, we actually get less of those viruses overall than we're seeing in in Europe and Africa. They don't have a great explanation as to why, but they're thinking there might be cultural issues or uh, or issues of of just how um, compacted societies are in those areas of increased transmission. Wait a minute, even if you have a kid in daycare? <laughs> I'm sure my viral load, way higher than the average person with my kid being in daycare. Uh, but what's uh, really exciting about this is what it means potentially, because it's so cheap, $25. Now we can do large-scale epidemiology studies to see maybe how these viruses track over time. Or we could create a, sort of a blood bank that examines... Uh, how viruses are sort of impacting different areas of the world geographically uh, over time. Uh, and the hope is, is that there's a number of diseases that we like autoimmune diseases that we suspect have a viral component like type one diabetes, but we haven't been able to find this could sort of prove as a way uh, of identifying some of the antibodies associated with uh, those diseases if they are in fact caused by viruses. Hmm. That, yeah, this is really exciting. And I know there have been a number of companies that have tried to create really easy ways of testing your blood and they haven't really lived up to their promise, you know, in, in some ways. You know, I, there's one company in particular I'm thinking about, but, um, you know, I, I, it, the promise was out there. It's going to be really super cheap. You're going to be able to test your blood at any pharmacy like the way you would just get money out of an ATM. And yet that hasn't happened. So what makes this test different? Well, it's only the first study that's come out on it. So we don't actually know that it's different at this point, because it's really only about over 560 people. That, but the initial findings are very strong, because they were able to identify so many different uh, viral uh, uh, antibodies associated with it, that, that register with what we expected to find. So there's some inclination that this test really did work uh, uh, pretty accurately and pretty quickly, which is, I think, what the excitement is really about. So I think we're going to see, um, as it begins to scale up and they try to take this out to thousands of people, if it does live, live up to those expectations. I hope so. We've been hearing this conversation for a long time, as you said, but I think this is another step in the progress. Well, one of the things that caught my eye this week is a study that compared two different type of wasps. Uh, so we've talked about uh, wasps in the past that have created, you know, zombies out of cockroaches. There's a lot of stinging <laughs> insects on this podcast lately. It's kind of frightening. Um, but this is a little bit more innocuous. So this is a comparative study of social and solitary wasp species. So one of the things that I think is really interesting about how our own brains have evolved is this idea that around the time that our skull sizes increased exponentially, we also started living in larger and larger social groups. And so there's a hypothesis out there called the social brain hypothesis that suggests that one of the reasons why natural selection favored uh, individuals with bigger brains is because they were able to make better decisions on how to behave with other people in the species. So there is a correlation with the ratio of sort of new brain neocortex to old brain um, in primates that 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 correlates with group size. So the larger the group, the larger that ratio. Um, wasps are different. 
<laughs> it turns out that the more social the wasp species, the smaller their brains. In particular, the part of their brain that seems to be most like human cognition. And you might think, well, wasps, really, do they have cognition? Um, well, it turns out they have a part of their brain called the mushroom body, probably because it looks like a mushroom. Um, and that's the part of the brain that is involved in multi-sensory integration, associative learning, spatial memory. And it turns out that solitary species have significantly larger mushroom bodies than species that live in social groups. So the one of the um, lead authors on the study that was published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society is a professor at Drexel University College of Arts and Sciences. His name is Sean O'Donnell, and he's quoted on Science Daily as saying, by relying on group mates, insect colony members may afford to make less individual brain investment. And he calls it the distributed cognition hypothesis. Essentially, it's like outsourcing different parts of your brain to actual different individuals in the species. So the individuals are dumber, but the group is smarter as a whole. Exactly. And one of the reasons that why distributed cognition might work in a species like the wasp is that most insect colonies are actually families, very large families. They share the same genetic material, of course, they come from the same parents. And the success of the colony, it, you know, the, the, the individual depends on the success of the colony. If the colony fails, everybody dies. Um, if the colony succeeds, everybody lives. So it's almost like a unit. And this is the kind of work that I find really fascinating because it, it is part of this um, kind of new science of emergence, right? It's trying to understand how individual stupid things can get together to make really smart big things. Hasn't there been a lot of study on this in ants? Ant colonies is a big part of an emergence work. Um, but also you can think about your own brain as being you know, the, the primary study of emergence, because any single neuron is pretty dumb on its own. But, you know, together, you know, we, th we think we're pretty smart. I thought you were going to say that uh, when we're with our families, we're a little bit dumber. <laughs> when we are individually. Well, that yeah. might be true for me. <laughs> that's definitely true for me. There's there's a, there's a lot of alcohol that happens in family functions of mine. Um, and that, you know, makes us all a little bit dumber. But uh, we do enjoy ourselves very much. So that was one study that I thought was kind of interesting. But there was another one that just caught my eye that I wanted to mention. Um, which is a new study that was just presented at the European League Against Rheumatism Annual Congress, say that uh, 10 times fast, meeting. Um, and what they found is that non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs uh, that are available over-the-counter, all over the place, drugs like um, naproxen, um, diclofenac, and uh, etorixicob, I can't even say that, and another one. <laughs> <laughs> um, that are commonly used to people who have mild pain actually affect ovulation in women. So just 10 days of taking um, one of these drugs in a relatively small group, but still there was a significant effect, found a significant decrease in the hormone progesterone, which is essential for ovulation. And it turns out that the women who were taking these drugs, again, they're over the counter, they're not prescription, only 6 to 27% of them actually ovulated compared with 100% of the control group. So this means that if you are a woman who's trying to get pregnant and you're on a relatively mild over-the-counter anti, you know, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, you could be inhibiting your ability to start a family. Oh. My mouth is kind of a gape like listening to talk about the story because NSAIDs are so common throughout and you uh uh, this study talks about a few, and we aren't talking about the, the biggest one, ibuprofen, which I'm sure almost um, a lot of our listeners use or have used. Uh, th uh, this is a could be like a groundbreaking study because like the impact on fertility, especially like understanding the role of an inflammation response and, and decreasing hormone levels, that seems um, pretty profound. It is. And I've taken naproxen, um, you know, after I had a car accident. And, you know, it certainly didn't occur to me that taking a 10 day dose of this particular drug would, you know, mess with my fertility. So I think that, you know, this is interesting. It's a small study. Um, and I think that, you know, there's still work that needs to be done. But, um, you know, it's kind of it kind of blew my mind. <laughs> so with that, let's take a short break. And we'll be back with my interview with Rachel Kalmar. 
This episode is sponsored by Harry's.com. Harry's is less than two years old and is already disrupting the shaving industry, offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. Overpaying for drugstore razor blades is a bad habit that you should leave behind. So make the smart switch to Harry's. Harry's high-quality German-engineered blades are crafted for sharpness and precision. They're half the price of big-name drugstore brands, and they ship them for free straight to your door. Personally, I really like Harry's because they provide a great shave, but also they look very nice in my medicine cabinet. Their starter set is just 15 bucks, and that includes the razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's shave cream or foaming shave gel, which actually I've started to use a little bit more now because it's uh, very smooth going on. But as an added bonus, Harry's will give first-time customers $5 off if you use our coupon code Minds. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, coupon code Minds. And this episode is sponsored by SmartThings. You have a smartphone. What about a smart home? SmartThings has created a super easy way to control, automate, and secure every aspect of your home. You don't have to be a tech genius to install and use it. That's why they were named one of the top 10 coolest gadgets of the year by Time magazine. SmartThings instantly turns your normal home into a smart home. Lights, locks, thermostats, security. With SmartThings, it's all connected through a single app that works on iPhone, Android, and Windows phones. One of the things that we're really concerned about here in California is water. And one of the ways in which you can use SmartThings is to detect water where it doesn't belong. You'd get an immediate alert, for example, if your washing machine starts leaking water and it's getting all over your living room. That, of course, could save you thousands of dollars in repairs and could also help you in a time when water is a scarce resource. Right now, SmartThings is offering its three most popular kits at a discount for our listeners. Inquiring Minds listeners get 10% off either the Home Security, Energy Saver, or Water Detection Kit when you go to smartthings.com minds. It's the perfect way to get started with a smart home. For 10% off and free domestic shipping, go to smartthings.com minds. That's smartthings.com minds. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Rachel Kalmar. Thanks. So I wanted to start by first asking you about your journey to where you are today. As I'm looking at you, you've got a ton of wearables already on you, uh, which of course is a departure from most of us who only wear maybe one or two, if any at all. Um, so how did you get to where you are now? What, what was your first interest in terms of collecting data about yourself? Sure. So I certainly didn't set out to be the world record holder for the most number of wearable devices worn continuously, but I think that I currently have that title. Um, my journey started uh, back when I was an undergrad and was interested in building neural prosthetics. And at UCSD, where I was an undergrad, there weren't any labs doing that. So I figured I would join this retinal lab, figure out how the eye worked, and then go back to electrical engineering and build prosthetic uh, retinas that you just plug into the optic nerve because it's just electricity. So it can't really be that hard, right? And uh, that was the beginning of a 12-year detour into neuroscience. So yeah, it actually is that hard, apparently, right? I mean, it's, apparently. you know, actually, vision is, seems to be one of the problems that um, computer scientists have had a really hard time solving because it's so complicated. Um, but what first made you think that, as, you know, putting a prosthetic into the brain would be a good idea? Because I think for some people, that's actually something they, they, they shy away from, you know, understanding to replace a limb or something like that. You know, we everybody can get around that. But was it a, a matter of you trying to fix a problem of someone who already has a damaged brain and needs to needs it fixed? Or was it were, was it about enhancement about becoming bionic, essentially? I think for me, it was a combination of two loves of mine, which were understanding uh, biology and particularly uh, sensory and motor systems. How does the brain work? And also really loving building things. And so I was really excited uh, to learn about the ability to, say, restore function. I had my own um, interface with medical technology. Um, I guess I, I, I benefited greatly from medical technology of a different form. Um, I was supposed to be four foot six as an adult. And through the marvels of modern medicine, I took synthetic growth hormone for 10 years and ended up being five foot three, which is amazing because I can drive a car and I can wear adult clothes. And I, it's been really awesome to see how my life has changed because of that. And so that's a very different kind of um, 
medical intervention, but I think for me, that was definitely part of my journey growing up was, hey, I am where I am today because of modern medicine. And so really was excited about the opportunity to combine things I loved and was excited about learning more about with the opportunity to help other people in a similar way that I benefited. So then in grad school, you worked on brain-computer interfaces, which um, for our listeners is uh, one direction that neuroscience is going, which is to try to really get the brain to manipulate a computer to meet the needs of a human being directly. So um, for example, some of the um, work that I did in grad graduate school was to record um, directly from the brains of patients with epilepsy who were in the ward because um, they needed to get part of their brain removed that was causing the seizures. And, and one of the outcomes of that kind of work was to try to figure out if we could get them to, say, move a cursor on a computer just by thinking about it in the right you know, way. So you develop these algorithms that the computer would get signals from directly from the neurons and translate that into code that would then move a cursor. Very, very basic. Um, but nowadays, we, we see patients that have these BCIs that can do things like move a prosthetic arm um, in order to feed themselves or, you know, play a video game or something like that. Um, just by thinking about it, and these are patients who are quadriplegic, so they don't have other ways of, of movement. Um, so tell us about what you were doing in terms of the brain-computer interface work? Sure. So my role was really more on the basic science side. I wanted to do something that had applications for prosthetics, but was really kind of drawn into this question of how do we understand what ensembles of neurons are doing and how they collectively prepare movement. And so I was uh, studying premotor cortex and also um, eye movements uh, areas involved in producing eye movements. And uh, looking at how ensembles of neurons represent upcoming movements. And although there was a lot of really interesting work there and potential application for prosthetics, I felt like the pace was also very slow. And I had a really kind of career-changing moment when I was in grad school it was my fourth year. My experiments still weren't working for reasons totally beyond my control. It turns out that the arm movement representation uh, is not in the same kind of stereotyped location that everybody thinks it is, and ended up having realizing that all the data I had collected so far was not going to be useful, and decided that it was a bad time to drop out. It was 2008. The economy had just crashed, so I figured I would walk across campus uh, at Stanford and try uh, something else. And so I ended up taking a class through the D school, which uh, the quarter I took it, or the, the year I took it, one of the partners was a prosthetics orthotics center in Ethiopia. I said, okay, well, you know, I'm working on neural prosthetics in the lab. The project this year is building a low-cost prosthetic knee joint for above-knee amputees, which is kind of the opposite, but it could kind of justify taking that class. And seeing people use something that I had built uh, with my team, of course, um, was an amazing experience because in science, you get the joy of seeing data and then you can publish that and ideally sometime down the line, somebody will benefit. But just seeing people use something that I had made was this transformative experience for me. And after that, I kind of knew that although I love and will always love neuroscience, that I wanted to explore other opportunities to do similar kinds of things like take in noisy data sets and use them to understand and model and predict behavior, but that perhaps there were other ways. So that brought you into industry, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, which is not actually unusual. You did your PhD at Stanford, and I think um, Stanford actually is a pretty good feeder school uh, for industry here in the Bay Area. So what was it that you started doing in industry, and how did that get you to where you are today with all of these wearables? Yeah, so... I think they put something in the water at Stanford uh, that makes people want to start companies. When I started grad school, I'm pretty sure that I didn't know what the word startup meant. Uh, but somehow I was convinced that this was the right path for me. And so ended up uh, doing a program called Singularity University, which is not about the singularity and is not a university, but it's more like a 10-week geek summer camp where... 
uh, people work together to try to solve big problems um, using technology. And so started a company out of that. The goal was to build kind of a open source hardware platform to make it easier for people to prototype and build sensor devices. Um, I was really excited about the idea of all of these network sensors that were giving us all of this data that we could use to explain and predict and model behavior much in the way that I had done in neuroscience. But instead of getting data from noisy neurons, it would be getting data from noisy sensors from multiple different sources. And so in that process um, of starting that company, uh, we went through Rock Health, which is a digital health startup incubator in San Francisco. It was a fantastic experience. I learned so much about business models and hardware and open source. And ultimately, uh, that company didn't work out, but it was a great crash course in uh, the digital health space, the hardware space, and in the connected sensor data space. And so then I had met Sunny, who's the the founder of Misfit Wearables, um, while I was part of Rock Health, and then joined on at Misfit as a data scientist, where I got to be involved in um, building the the first product, which was Shine, and uh, work on the data side of that, and spent the next uh, two plus years at Misfit, really getting to have get my hands completely dirty with. Um, the data from these devices, the data from users, the and really exploring what's involved in these data ecosystems, which have uh, different idiosyncrasies than neural data, but also a lot of similarities. So what do you mean by ecosystem? Yeah, so I started, <laughs> this comes back to the question you asked before, which is why am I wearing so many devices? So when I joined Misfit, uh, we knew that we were going to build an activity tracker. And so I started wearing all the activity trackers that I could get a hold of. And the goal was to be able to compare the data and also look at things like variability within a device, across devices, within a wearing position, across wearing positions. Like, is the data from my arm the same as the data from my waist? How do they, how do they vary? And thought that I would just plug in all the different devices from different companies and get the data. And that led me down a very strange rabbit hole, which was uh, in trying to get the data, I realized that one, I couldn't, and two, it wasn't really simple why I couldn't. It wasn't a technical problem. It was more a problem of business models and of uh, that these devices are all hardware devices, but they're not really hardware devices, they're data devices. Nobody makes a wearable because they think somebody will like to wear this plastic or metal thing strapped around their wrist. The reason why you make one of these devices is because you want the data. And so if you give away all the data, you're also giving away the product. And so there's this, um, we're in this funny time right now because you want to to make the data as accessible as possible so that people can build things on top of it and they can access it. But if you give away too much of it, you're essentially commoditizing yourself. And so I found myself inadvertently on this two-year speaking tour, giving talks about barriers to um, barriers and enablers to data ecosystems. So as you're wearing these devices... I mean, you know, we can get some data off of them, right? I mean, because that's, that's really, you're exactly right. That's why people do them. Like a Fitbit, for example, um, which is one that I'm familiar with, uh, tracks your progress of wh what you've been doing, how many calories you've burned, that kind of thing. Um, and so you can probably presumably plug that into some kind of application on your computer and see um, the results. But are you saying that you can't get into the raw data and that's the problem? Or so... I'd say that, that uh, I'll answer that in two parts. So one is that you can absolutely look at your, your data and your results, but your ability to export it is varies depending on which device you use. And the thing that you can't get is granular data. So what you can do is say, like, go to Jawbone's website. They have a nice button where you can click download and you can download a spreadsheet of all of your daily step counts. Um, Fitbit and other companies have similar things. 
you can also access the data via an API, which lets developers who write apps uh, query the device and get some information about your data. But what you can't do is get a spreadsheet of all of your time-resolved data saying what you've done at each minute of the day. And while that sounds like a really geekly thing that like maybe I'm interested in, I'm a data scientist, I love this kind of thing, it seems like, well, why would people really care about that? Um, and I'd say that most people don't care about that, but if you want to make apps or services or other things that allow you to interact with the data in real time, then you do need a higher level of access. And so there are a lot of complicated challenges here. Not all of them have to do with business models. Also, things like uh, battery life, if you're always asking in the device, hey, give me an update, hey, give me an update, hey, give me an update, then the battery is not going to last for as long and you're going to not blame yourself for this app that you installed, you'll blame the device. But that's, that's a really interesting point, though, because I think that maybe I come from the same lens that you do, where I, w- I would want to know the the entirety of, of the data, because how else are you supposed to do any kind of work on it, right? I mean, that to me is always, I, I do actually get excited, you know, when I download a bunch of data from an experiment, because not only can I answer perhaps the question that I set out to answer, but often in the data, I find a much more interesting question that can be answered or that, you know, a new experiment needs to be designed to answer. Um, and that, it, to me, is, is the exciting part. So I always thought of these wearables as, as providing that promise of, you know, data about you, um, that you can then go in and, and analyze in whatever way you want. But it sounds like that's, we're not there yet. Yeah, I'd say that there are varying degrees to which you can do that. And there's a whole community of people uh, who are really into that that kind of thing. So the Quantified Self Conference is happening over the next couple of days here in San Francisco. And that community is awesome about saying, I want my data about me because I have this question that I want to use data to help me answer. Uh, and so there are awesome tools that people have written. And a lot of the companies have um, have really supported the Quantified Self community. I'd say that Quantified Self well, an awesome thing is also a subset of the general population. Even though we can track many things, most of people don't really want to use the data for uh, looking at interesting statistics about themselves. Most people just want to wear a device and get answers or have the device interact with their environment or tell them when they're getting a phone call or when they're getting sick or when they should go to sleep or who who knows what. And so uh, I think that it's interesting to see what happens when we do have the ability to collect all of this data. I'd say that most of the population is going to want that kind of apps and services that are built on top of this data, but that there are uh, other groups like the quantified self community who do want this data as well. I think there's also kind of a danger in some of these devices that they seem to give you the promise of of those data. But as we neuroscientists know that, uh, you know, data are complicated, right? I mean, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of noise that you need to filter out. So for example, you know, there are these devices that you can put on your head that looks like a headband, and presumably they measure your EEG, electroencephalography, which is essentially your brain waves. Um, But anyone who has done EEG work knows that it's really actually hard to figure out what is a true signal, what is noise, what is a signal mean? What does it mean if you have a particular waveform at a particular time? Um, you know, it's it's complicated. So, you know, when I see those devices, I often think, well, there's no way that you can possibly learn anything from this kind of like simple wearable headband. And yet the promise is that, you know, you can use these headbands to change the way your brainwaves work, you know, using what they call neurofeedback, right? You can learn to train your own brainwaves. And so, how how do you what what do you see as kind of some of the is that an accurate fear that I have that people are being misinformed is that and that they're going to be thinking that that's what they can do is there a charlatanism out there I mean I I view the state of activity tracking and connected devices right now as kind of I call it BYOQ like bring your own question if you have a question that uh, you can data can help you answer great, you're in luck. There are so many kinds of data that you can get now. Maybe not time-resolved data, maybe that's a little more complicated, but there, it's, it's never been easier to collect data about ourselves in passive ways. 
Um, but if you don't have a question, it's going to be difficult to have an obvious um, way that these devices change your life. Like, sure, some people love competing with each other to try to see who can be more active. If you're trying to lose weight, great. Like, there are all these tools out there. But if you don't have a specific goal in mind, they're still not really going to change your life. Um, they're always surprises, and I think it's always interesting to learn about ourselves. But I have this, this analogy that... Uh, I mean, forgive me, I'm still working it out, uh, but it's something like all of these devices are kind of like mills that are producing flour, and the data is the flour. But the goal is not to sell flour to people. Most people don't want flour. Most people don't bake. The goal really is to be able to give this flour to, say, the cookie industry, who then will make delicious cookies that people will purchase and eat. But we don't yet have the cookie industry. But if we give away all the flour from our mills, then we're also not going to be able to reap the benefits of uh, being connected to the cookie industry. And so the analogy is not perfect and it breaks down. But I think what most people want are cookies and not flour. And we will get there and we're moving there. And I think it's exciting to have uh, players like Apple and Google in the game because the more people that are wearing connected devices, the more people there are thinking about what can we do with this kind of data? What kind of services can we build on top of it? And so I think that part of the ecosystem is coming soon, but we're not quite there yet. Yeah, so I just uh, recently got an Apple Watch. Um, it was a Mother's Day gift. My uh, husband was telling me that I look at my phone too much <laughs> and that maybe if I wore the watch, uh, then it would just tap me if there's an important message. And I actually have found that one change is that I do look at my phone much less. In fact, I often miss <laughs> messages now because I miss the tap. Um, but I haven't, I, I can't say that, I mean, I, I'm sure I'm not using it to its full capability. Um, but what has been surprising to you about any of the wearables that you've experienced and how have any of them actually changed? changed your life? Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, I would say that w one of the things that I've learned about myself by wearing all these devices is not an exciting thing at all, but it's that I seem to have a much higher tolerance for being able to wear lots of devices than anybody else I've met. Um, and it's been interesting looking at the data but really, I'm doing this for more about exploring data ecosystems than trying to learn about myself. The things that I've learned about myself were things that I kind of already knew. Um, but I'd say that those are tracking wearables. There are also communication wearables. So like the Apple Watch and the Pebble are in that category where it's not just about tracking, but also interaction. And there are all sorts of other cool devices out there like Ringly, which is a ring that will vibrate with a colored LED to give you a heads up notification. Um, and then you can pull out your phone. But I really like a lot of these kind of phone auxiliaries, especially... Um, I think they're especially useful for women, but not for the reason that women care about fashion and how things look, but because women's clothing doesn't tend to have pockets. And so I get asked all the time, like, oh, well, aren't these wearables just going to go away and people are just going to use their phone for tracking everything? But everybody who's ever asked me that question is male. And I'd say that uh, we're going to have different devices for different purposes. There's no one-size-fits-all solution, including the phone. But I do like having um, – I wear a Pebble, and I and been trying out the Samsung gear as well. I like having the heads-up notifications on my wrist because sometimes my phone is in my backpack on the other side of the room. And so it's interesting to think not just about what we can do as auxiliary uh displays for our phones, but how wearing connected devices can also start to change the way that we interact with people. We have only really barely begun to scratch the surface of that, if at all. But I think that there are a lot of really interesting kinds of uh, things that we can do with that. Like, for instance, if my future wearable can track the person that I'm talking to and see when their eyes start to glaze over after I've been talking about data ecosystems for too long and I get a little buzz on my wrist saying, okay, Rachel, that's enough. Um, I mean, that's, that, that is a one example of many kinds of things that 
will start to be a lot more interesting when we can play with interpersonal interaction. So the interesting thing, though, in that kind of scenario is that you are actually then collecting data about the other person without necessarily their permission. So Mm -hmm. this brings me to the question of privacy, um, which I think is a major issue in terms of where the future is going. Um, I mean, you know, we we joked about people who are wearing Google, Google Glass and called them glass holes because you kind of felt like, well, they can look at you and learn about you in ways that and sort of person who doesn't have access to that technology cannot and it and it makes the interaction feel somehow invasive. Um, so what do you see as some of the privacy issues? And is, is privacy just going out, you know, the window? Or are we just, uh, you know, going to not care about it as much in the future? Or do you think that this is still something that is a major issue? Oh, this is obviously a major issue. And this is something that we're collectively as a field trying to figure out now, like what is okay to share? And this is also tied in with the data question, like how much data can we share? What if you uh, you accidentally pick up somebody else's device and you wear that and you export their data? But I think there, there are tons of privacy questions. Um, can, can your insurance company give you discounts for wearing a device? Yes, and they are. Um, can you get cheaper car insurance by uh, having a car that monitors your driving patterns. Yes, that's happening too. So a lot of these are opt-in right now, but I think that there are a lot of really interesting questions, not just about privacy, but about how we collectively as a society uh, want to use this data, what we say is okay, what we say isn't. Like Obviously, things like using data to prevent readmission to hospitals after, say, a heart attack, it seems like a pretty clear example where it's in everybody's best interest to monitor the kind of data that you can monitor um, in that scenario. But I think that, as as you said, there there are a lot of huge and important privacy questions that are not just for the the tech companies to answer, but for all of us collectively. And I think you're hitting on something that's really important, which is that for a lot of people, they see wearables as just something that is almost akin to vanity, right? You know, like the Fitbit, for example, it'll just keep you on track, help you lose weight and so forth. But um, they actually have applications that seem to be life-saving. So they're actually used in some clinical trials to collect data about a patient uh, that maybe doctors wouldn't have access to that can help them decide whether a particular drug is effective, say, uh, or, you know, whether a person is likely to relapse or, you know, get them to help earlier, um, you know, by, by imagine, you know, tracking things like blood pressure and, and, and things like that, um, or heart rate. So do you, do you see a future in wearables that is going to go beyond just kind of um, vanity and become a real kind of integral part of of a person's health profile or in in the, what what are the the applications there that you see that that will um go go beyond vanity yeah absolutely so the way that i i think about wearables is i kind of think about them in three categories like right now we're in mostly in the first category where we have devices that can give us data they can help us with behavior change if that's something that we want to uh to do, they are starting to be things that can uh, help motivate us in other ways, but it's really more about the data. And like I said, like I called this before, it's BYOQ, like bring your own question. Um, Then the next category, the next phase of the wearables um, are going to be more passive Uh, So things that you can wear without really having to think about it or things that are tracking us um, ideally in an opt-in way that allow us to collect uh, longitudinal data sets of our behavior across time so that then we can build better predictive models tying that data to outcomes to say, okay, well... um, what what's normal on a population level? How do I fit in with this? What did uh, cancer patients look like 10 years before they had cancer? Like being able to figure out early warning signs of preventable or treatable diseases is going to be um, a huge win for all of us. So there are a lot of really, I think, important and interesting health 
applications that we'll get by having these kinds of data sets that we don't quite have now, but we're moving towards. So that's kind of the, the second category of wearables and how they'll be useful. And then the third is an interaction with the environment. So we have the internet of things or connected devices, anything electronic is going to be connected. And uh, as we know, uh, it's still hard to hack into the brain. And so we can't connect with them um, just by thinking about it. And so these wearables uh, offer us a way to interact with our environment in new and novel ways as well, which could be anything from um, saving a lot of money for not heating parts of a building where people aren't there. And that can be through personal wearable sensors. That can be through building sensors as well. But these are the kinds of things that uh, we're going to have not just more personalized healthcare, but more personalized experiences in our living environments, in our office environments, and in the the broader world around us. So if I'm a person who wants to purchase a wearable in order to collect data about myself, uh, how do I know that that data is going to be accurate? So for example, um, you know, I had wanted to do this one study of musicians performing with each other, and I wanted to test their emotional reactions to each other. So it would have been really great to have a really good heart rate sensor to have, you know, some kind of what we call galvanic skin response in the psychology field, which essentially is a measure of your sweat. <laughs> um, you know, and these kinds of other bio metric measures, which are hard to do in the lab because there's a lot of noise. And yet people are selling things on the internet uh, that pr propose to be able to provide you with these data. And as I mentioned earlier, the EEG things that I found were pretty inaccurate, pretty, pretty, I mean, I don't know, I wouldn't know if inaccurate is, is the right word, but you know, they, they give you pretty gross measurements, right, which are not particularly informative. Um, so how, what, what advice can you give to our listeners about how they can evaluate the um, accuracy of a wearable? Yeah, I'd say that accuracy is not really the right, uh, the right thing to focus on, because I, I think that it all comes down to what are what are your goals? Why are you buying this wearable? Like, what are you hoping to accomplish? Because I'd say that if you want, if you say go in because you have um, uh, a cardiac issue and you want to figure out what kind of arrhythmia or what what kind of problem you're having, that accuracy in recording your your heart rate there is important. But for the kinds of wearables that we're talking about, which are tracking, activity, sleep, etc., I'd say that accuracy is not really the right thing to focus on. Most of these devices are designed to motivate people to be more active or to give them some idea of the, their baseline activity. And what matters more is that they're internally consistent. So if you walk the same, uh, the same path every day, it shouldn't tell you that you walked 6,000 6, steps on one day and 12,000 on the next day. It doesn't have to be exactly the same number. And I guess that there's a whole side question of like, what is a step anyway? But I'd say that you want your device to be internally consistent. And from having worn all of these devices, all of them are internally consistent. They might give you different numbers, but that's because... There is no fundamental unit of measure called a step. If there is, if you're walking, we know what a step is if you're walking. But what is a step if you're doing yoga or swimming and is a backstroke step the same as a butterfly step? And it becomes much more complex to try to understand how to fit all of the activities that we do into this very narrow category, which most of these devices uh, measure and I can go on <laughs> talking about standards and lack of standards and measurements, but I'd say that you should buy the device that you like the user interface, you like uh, the trade-offs that are made. Some devices have a long battery life, some devices have a, a watch face display, some devices you wear around your wrist, some you wear on your waist, and that it's a very personal decision and it d all comes down to what do you care about. So, but how much variability have you experienced? I mean, is it like that big where some one device will say you took 6,000 steps, another will say you took 12,000 steps? I'd say that they tend to be in the same ballpark, but that uh, I'm going to geek out for a second here, but 
let's say that you're collecting data from your accelerometer on your device, which is what measures movement. You have to figure out, not you as a user, but you as a data scientist or you as uh, somebody working on the, the hardware for the device, what do you consider a step? And so you have a distribution of real signal and a distribution of noise. And in a perfect world, they would not be overlapping. So you have clearly these are steps and clearly these are not steps. But we all know that in the real world, you have overlapping distributions. There are whole fields of statistics about how do you determine what's a false positive versus a true positive. And so everybody has to draw their line somewhere to decide what is a, a real step and what's not. And everybody draws that threshold at a slightly different place. And that's okay because honestly, like the goal of these things is not to truly count all of your steps because as we discussed, what does that even mean? Um, the goal is to encourage you to be more active. And so I would rather have a device that slightly overcounts my steps um, or errs on the side of giving me a little bit more encouragement than errs on the side of excluding some of my real activity because it then is also excluding uh, false positives. And so it's tricky, but I'd say that they're they're all in the ballpark of reasonable, or at least all the ones that I've tried. They all have the areas that they uh, perform better uh, and the scenarios in which they're less good. Some of them, like the Misfit uh, devices, were designed to be worn at multiple wearing positions. And so if you wear it on your ankle or your waist or your wrist, you're going, you might get different numbers because your foot moves differently than your, your waist does. But the algorithm was designed for doing that. Whereas some of the other devices that are really designed to be worn in one wearing position won't really work as well if you wear them in a different place. So one of your other current projects is to try to get people excited about science and try to get them interested in their own data or the data around them. Um, so I just wanted to end with a question about, you know, one of your current projects, which is Dr. Brainlove, I believe. So tell us a little bit about that. Um, what, what's the goal and uh, what do you hope to accomplish? Sure. So Dr. Brainlove combines uh, my love of devices and of tracking and electronics with neuroscience. And so I'm part of a group of people called the phage, and we built a giant uh, brain, climbable brain jungle gym that sits on the back of a school bus that we cut off. So one of the members of our group, Natalia, is a neuroscience grad student at Berkeley. And we took an MRI of her brain, turned it into a mesh that then we sent off to a company called Digital Permaculture, and they made it into a 20-foot-tall jungle gym for us. And we cut off the top of a school bus, which was actually a lot of fun. Um, I had no idea how to do that. Um, and we turned this into a giant art car that allows you to visualize the activity of your brain and expand it by, we calculated it's 125,000 times the volume of your brain. So you can wear an EG cap and the activity will be represented on this giant brain that we built. And if it sounds like a Burning Man project, it's because it does in fact go to Burning Man, but our uh, group is really excited about science outreach and education. We brought this to the Bay Area Science Festival. We were at, uh, we had a panel at South by Southwest last year. Many of the members of our group were involved in the cognitive technologies exhibit at the Exploratorium. So our goal is to take science and turn it into something that's not just about textbooks, but also really fun and engaging and allows us to see data in a way that's not just looking at charts and graphs. Great. And we'll post some links to um, Dr. Brainlove. Uh, and you have an Indiegogo campaign, I believe, uh, currently to help fund some of that work on our Tumblr page. So Rachel, thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you. So 
one of the things that I felt um, I really wanted to delve more deeply in with Rachel, but she didn't seem to want to go there, is this notion that the wearables promise something pretty specific, but they don't seem to deliver it. And here, and here, I'm talking about the accuracy of the data. You know, these these all these devices seem to tell you we're gonna we're gonna count your steps, which is a really specific number, um, or we're gonna tell you what your heart rate was or how many calories you burned today. These are very specific numbers, and yet it seems seems like they're not that accurate from her experience. So both of us have smartwatches on. Do you approach it as if that number is accurate? I kind of do. I mean, I, I, I behave as if I do, right? If I, if I, and then this is like, again, clearly I shouldn't be doing this, but if I go for a run and it tells me that I burned 500 calories, like I'm not gonna think twice about eating that donut, <laughs> um, which also, you know, on its calorie count will tell me. And, you know, I, I kind of do make those kinds of calculations, expecting that what the wearable is telling me is true. And whereas Rachel was saying, well, look, it's about consistency within the device. It's about how it affects your behavior. You know, I still wonder if that's really, you know, if if, if that's not just a little bit of a cop out, because I feel that then why doesn't the wearable just say that? Why doesn't it say, you know, your general activity level is, yeah, about 40% of whatever. Because the user, user interface for that sounds horrible. Like, you did okay today, Kishore. <laughs> but no, it says you took, you know, 5,237 steps. You know, it's so specific. Well, are we iterating to a place of accuracy and we're just not there yet? Or is that something that you don't think is important? Because I, just from my experience... I, I care about sort of relative rates. I mean, especially on like steps. Like, did I did I exercise as much as I did the other day? Or did I just like essentially do nothing? That's what I'm looking for. And that's what Rachel steps. suggests yeah. is really the point of wearables. And I see where she's coming from. I see where you're coming from. But then I want, to, I, I want the app to be honest about that and say, you know, we need 10 days to figure out your baseline. And then we'll tell you this is, you know, on average, you scored a 7 out of 10 in terms of your overall baseline activity. And not to tell me that I took 5,237 steps. So we're talking about like steps and heart rate, you know, to largely healthy individuals, which won't make a huge difference. But when Apple announced the the watch and like the new suite of devices, they talked about this growing to the point where there'll be apps to like monitor your blood oxygen levels, potentially like if you have type two diabetes doing some glucose measurements. That's where it starts to get a little I, I, I come on to your side about this, where it's like that better be accurate if we start going into those realms. Is that your concern going that way? That's that's a large part of it. But it, I mean, part of it comes from the promise that, you know, like, let's say I, and I've actually had this experience where, you know, I'm applying for a grant to measure something like, you know, heart rate in individuals who are engaged in particular activity. And I want to get a pretty expensive, accurate heart rate monitor. And the granting organization says, well, why don't you just download the one on your phone? It's free. And here, you know, I have to say to them, because it's not accurate. <laughs> and yet they're going to, you know, without, you don't know that it's not accurate. I mean, I haven't tested it the way Rachel has wearing it, you know, for two years. And, you know, you also you don't know whether each each item of the device, like each each individual product is accurate. So but what I mean is if I buy three iPhones, are they all going to tell me I took exactly the same number of steps? Or where's the variability? You know, where where is the noise in the data? I think that's what we still don't have an understanding of. And I worry that there, since there is no regulation, there's no like FDA saying, well, you have to be, you know, so accurate. And, you know, I, yeah, you know, I, I understand we live in a capitalist society. I this, but I think this is where people like Rachel come in, like, like with new products on Amazon, there's early adopters that go in, review it, and talk about how great it is. I think we need that for some of these health tracking apps. And Rachel does a lot of that, like organizing meetups and groups of people to actually test uh, and look at different wearable devices and make them better. I'm wondering if we just need a larger community of that early adopter in this kind of platform. Yeah, maybe we need to really have like a consumer report specifically for these wearables that, that still exist, like, an Angie's sounds, list. <laughs> that sounds like a really tough job. Yeah. So I guess we're not there yet, but um, we are getting there. And if you are about to go and buy a wearable, uh, be aware that there is charlatanism out there and they don't always deliver what they promise. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds. 
or at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow, on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your own experience with wearables, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. And once again, this episode is sponsored by Harry's.com. Harry's is less than two years old and is already disrupting the shaving industry, offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. And Harry's will give first-time customers $5 off if you go to Harry's.com and use coupon code inquiringminds. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, coupon code inquiringminds. To help keep this show free, we work with some great advertisers. And one of the reasons advertisers love Inquiring Minds is that they know the show has amazing listeners. About once a year, we run a listener survey to help demonstrate this to advertisers. So with that in mind, we have an all-new survey that I'd like you to take to do just that. Go to podsurvey.com slash minds. The survey will only take five minutes, and we're going to ask you some questions about yourself and what you'd like to buy, but it's completely anonymous. Your answers help us find advertisers that are well-matched to you, your interests, and the show. When you're finished, you can enter a monthly drawing to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Even if you've taken one of our previous surveys, I'd like to ask you to take this new one. It's been completely revised, and advertisers like it when we have the most up-to-date answers. Plus, you'll also have a chance to win that $100 gift card. So once again, that's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y podsurvey.com slash minds. Thank you so much for your help and for listening. Inquiring Minds is produced by Smarch lover Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration and partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com.